Well, while the Nationals may be playing in Baltimore this weekend, heading to Walters is still a great idea. The Tokyo Olympics are finally here, and Walters is a great spot to catch all the action, whether you're into gymnastics or swimming, track and field. Walters has enough TVs to watch everything and anything your heart desires. This year, surfing, skateboarding, softball, and sport climbing have been added to the exhibition events taking place, so make sure you look out for those competitions as well. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Ninth pitch of the at-bat. Here it comes. Swinging a line drive right at the first baseman. Mancini on one hop. He'll jog to the bag for the unassisted out. And Matt Harvey has retired eight in a row and allowed just one hit over six shutout innings. Swinging a line drive right field. This is trouble. It's going to be down one hop off the fence at the 318 mark. Mullins will score easily. Hayes is jogging into second with an RBI double. Orioles three nationals nothing in the sixth inning. Here's Franco, another right-handed batter, the pitch. Cracked in the air to right center field, chasing Soto. He will make the catch, then go into a dive. Mancini tags it third, he'll score. The other runners hold. Sacrifice fly for Michael Franco. Baltimore five, the Nationals nothing. And welcome to Nats Chat for Sunday, July 25th, 2021, along with Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman of MassInSports.com. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. It was this past Tuesday that Mike Rizzo said that he's taking a dual path approach to the July 30th MLB trade deadline. That's could be buyers, could be sellers. Since that Tuesday conversation with the general manager and president of baseball operations, the Nationals are one in three. The three losses have come against the lowly Miami Marlins and Baltimore Orioles. Steven Strasburg has suffered a second setback. Max Scherzer has been scratched from his latest start. And the Nationals offense has struggled to score runs off two of the worst starting pitchers in the American League this season in Jorge Lopez and Matt Harvey. I don't know if the dual path approach still exists, but right now, one path is a rocky road filled with potholes. Another path is a smooth sailing highway. And that smooth sailing highway right now is leading directly to Selville come trade deadline day. But the Nationals, they lose again at the Orioles. They now have lost this series stunningly, although they've been following this Nats team, maybe not so stunningly. 5-3 the final on Saturday night. Mark, things are not trending in a positive direction. They are not, Al. And I think as we've been saying uh, for a few days now that we felt like the only chance they were going to sell is if the team cratered over this next week. Well, I don't know if they've completely cratered, but I can see the comet falling from the sky. And 
it's getting close to impact and it's going to create a very large crater if it does hit ground, unless somehow it burns up in the atmosphere. And the only way that's going to happen is if they win, certainly on Sunday and at least three out of four, maybe two out of four. It's not good. This is exactly what they didn't need to happen. And, you know, I, I'm guilty of this as well, but we, we talked about how tough the schedule was against the NL West. And then we said, all right, the schedule's about to ease up against the Marlins and the Orioles. Here's your chance. Well, they won two against the Marlins. They haven't won since. And so much for that playing a factor in all this. They are teetering on the brink right now. Seven games under 500, five games to go until the trade deadline. I tweeted this after the game. You can follow me on Twitter at Al Galdi. You can follow Mark on Twitter at Mark Zuckerman. You can follow the Nats Chat podcast on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. The only reason at this point for the Nationals not to sell is the state of the National League East. That's it. Like if you're doing a list of two columns, one column is reasons to buy or not to sell. The other column is reasons to sell. The column for reasons to sell is so much longer right now than the column for reasons not to sell. The only real reason is the division isn't very good. If the Nats can at some point catch fire again, get back some of their horses, the Nats can make a realistic run at the division. Like that would be the thinking of not to sell. Otherwise, the state of the farm system, the fact that the Nats are an older team, the fact that the Nats have these injuries now that they're contending with, and it just feels like things are not going the Nats' way this season. The fact that the various facets of this Nationals team are all flawed. The offense is flawed. The starting pitching is flawed. The bullpen is flawed. Like all of these things are screaming right now for this team to sell. And so, yeah, like let's say the Nats do win game three at the Orioles. And and let's say like they split at Philadelphia or something like that. Should that dissuade Mike Rizzo from selling at this point? Like, I guess here's the question. If you don't know by now whether you should buy or sell, doesn't that tell you that you probably should sell? Like, doesn't that tell you everything you need to know if you don't know by now what you truly are this season? Well, yeah, I, I get what you're saying. And I think the question would be, it's kind of as you alluded to there, is I think they know, deep down, Mike Rizzo knows this is not a great team. And I think we've all known that for a while. But we've also known that it's possible that this year of all years, you may only have to win 86 games <laughs> to win the NL East. And if that still seems within striking distance. And if you think the roster is going to be healthier the rest of the way, then you say, yeah, let's go for it. And, you know, who knows what happens in October? Do I think the Nationals are as good as the Dodgers, the Giants, and the Padres? No, no, I don't. But I have felt like, at least when healthy or close to healthy, that they do stack up with the Mets. I don't feel like the Mets are appreciably better than them. At the moment, yes, because of all the injuries, but if that were to get better. So, I mean, that would be the argument for it. I'm not trying to make that case for it necessarily. I'm saying that would be what it is. If they're in any other division right now, it's no question, no contest what they're going to do. So the other part of that equation, though, is this. It's easy to say, okay, they're not winning this year. It's time to sell. The thing is, you got to get something in return. It's actually going to make a difference. You know, are you just selling for the sake of selling or are you selling for, with a purpose, which is to restock your farm system, maybe even a player or two who's going to make a difference next year in 2022? If you can get those pieces, then sure. I think that's an appropriate way to go. But sell for the sake of it, just to dump salaries or just to say, hey, because we're not going to win this year, we're going to trade away our top relievers and others and just get a couple of single A prospects that may never reach the big leagues. I don't know that that really makes a whole lot of sense either. So you better get something for them if you're going to make those moves. I think that's the the dilemma now. It's not so much, hey, are we going all in trying to buy and trying to win? But what are we getting if we sell? And if you are committed then to selling, you better sell pieces that are going to bring something back. So I would say a few things. Number one, it's funny right now. 
to get to 86 wins, a very modest win total that guarantees you nothing, the Nats would have to go 41 and 24 the rest of the way. 41 and 24, that's not easy to do. And the way things look right now, that is pie in the sky. The Nats going 41 and 24 the rest of the way. Number two, so my approach would be this, and we're all different, right? But my approach would be trade the free agents to be. Trade Scherzer, Hand, Hudson, Schwarber, Gomes, Harrison. All of the guys who can walk at the end of this season and you get nothing back for them. This isn't about trading away like Trey Turner or anybody like that. Trade away the guys who you're at risk of losing for nothing at the end of this season. Then I think it becomes just take what you can get, okay? I think we understand you're not going to get a bunch of top 10 prospects for each guy, but something is better than nothing. And if you're truly going nowhere this season, it doesn't really matter at the end of the day if Josh Harrison brings back, you know, a top 50 prospect or some single A pitcher who maybe works out or maybe ends up being nothing. Something is better than nothing. And I think especially with the state of their farm system, the Nats need to just add inventory, add bodies, add potential pieces, and hopefully a few of them end up hitting. And we can look back upon this sell off years from now and say, yeah, you know what? Who knew? But uh, Joe Schmo, who they got for Jan Gomes, that guy ended up becoming a quality number three starter for the Washington Nationals, like that kind of a thing. The other thing, too, I would say is being a big seller this year, that doesn't necessarily like signal a rebuild or anything. It signals to me a retool. But all you're doing, again, is selling off guys who can leave you at the end of this season. Then this offseason, you can reload. You know, you, you will have cleared some payroll. You can kind of reset the button and get back at it in 2022. This doesn't have to be the start of like some five-year rebuild. But I just think with all these veterans coming up for free agency, with the state of the team this season, and the fact that like to me, Scherzer, Hand, Hudson, Harrison, maybe Schwarber, maybe Gomes, I think those guys do have some value. You should be able to get something of consequence back for those guys. I think it's an interesting point, and, I, and that's another one that they have to consider here. It's not just how are you looking at the rest of this year. It's what are you looking at next year? Are you saying we're going to next year and we are, like you said, retooling and going forward again? Or are we saying, okay, you know what? It's time to take a couple of steps back, and it's going to be a new generation of nationals that is the next team to make the playoffs. So I don't know the answer to that. I don't know if they know what the answer to that is either. The only thing I worry about with selling, trading away guys who are going to be free agents is, does that completely hinder your chance of re-signing them this winter? And I don't know the answer. Sometimes guys will come back. Sometimes they won't. Once they're traded, that's kind of it. So like if you're the Nationals, maybe you want to keep Brad Hand. Maybe you want to keep Kyle Schwarber, who's you know had a really nice time here and seems to be happy here. Maybe that's someone you'd want to re-sign. And then does trading them kind of negate the possibility of doing that? It's a tricky question. I don't know the answer to that. I think there's a, a cold calculated baseball move about saying, okay, we're not winning this year. Therefore, whatever parts we have that we can sell and get something in return that will help us down the road, you do it. But then there's also that big picture, almost kind of emotional aspect of it. And what message are you sending to these players and to others about what your future is? Yeah. I mean, it probably doesn't help if you want to resign these guys or have these guys back next year to trade them. But to me, I don't see that as a compelling enough reason not to trade them. I would say that as, okay, it's a risk I'm willing to take, you know, because at the end of the day, you can find another Brad Hand. You can find another Daniel Hudson. You can find another Kyle Schwarber. You know, Scherzer's a different conversation. I get that. But even with him, you know, I, I think about with Max, what if he leaves you at the end of the year? The stuff about, well, if they trade him and then he doesn't want to resign with you, understood. But what if he ups and leaves at the end of this year? What if he says, look, I don't know how much longer I have. I have one nagging injury after another these days. I'm going to sign with the Dodgers. I'm going to sign with the Yankees. I'm going to sign with the Astros. I'm going to sign with the Cardinals. Like, 
he could end up doing you. This stuff about the Nats doing him, he could do you at the end of the season. So, you know, I, I just think that has to be kept in mind as well. But yeah, man, uh, <laughs> we, we, we're having this conversation in late July. The Nationals, I believe the time has come to sell. The only compelling reason left is the state of the division. And right now, that just is not a strong enough reason not to sell. A disastrous last few days for the Nationals. No other way to say that. Nat Chat is sponsored by Silver Branch Brewing Company, located in downtown Silver Spring, only a one-minute walk from the Silver Spring Metro Station. Silver Branch is a perfect jumping-off point to Metro down to the game. Park at the Cameron Street parking lot and meet up with friends for a beer and a bite to eat before Metroing down. You can also get Silver Branch beer at Nationals Park. Beyond the Gnome World, one of Silver Branch's four flagship beers is available at District Drafts at Section 223. Brewed to be light and refreshing, Beyond the Gnome World won a gold medal for the Saison beer style at the Great American Beer Festival last year. Beyond the Gnome World is deliciously dry and thirst-quenching and the perfect beer for hot summertime ball games. You may not be familiar with Saison, but take our word for it, baseball season is the perfect season for Saison, and buying from District Drafts to support your local breweries is a gnome run. Go to Section 223 and try Beyond the Gnome World the next time that you're at Nats Park, and make sure you stop by Silver Branch, located in Metro Plaza, just steps from the Silver Spring Metro. Silver Branch Brewing Company, when you come in, let them know that the Nats Chat Podcast sent you. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website 
are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. We'll get to the game, but Mark, the Scherzer news on Saturday. It's incredible, man. Every day there's something beyond the game to get into with the Nationals, and Max Scherzer ends up being scratched from this scheduled start on Saturday night due to a triceps ailment. Now, of course, Twitter went nuts with this because people thought that this was a phony injury and the Nats were about to trade Max. It doesn't seem to be the case, but uh, right triceps discomfort. What happened and uh, where are we with Max right now? Well, <laughs> yeah, talk about uh, three alarm fire when that news came out at about 4.30, two hours before first pitch. What my understanding of it, what Max told the reporters up there at Camden Yards and what Davey Martinez told all of us later on in his pregame uh, Zoom session was he hurt himself taking BP. And I'm not going to ha- try to make any excuse for that one. Pitchers hitting, getting hurt, not a good thing. Wasn't pitching, but he did throw a bullpen session the other day in advance of the start and it didn't feel 100% right. So they looked at this and decided, let's not take a chance. There's no reason to try to to push it. Now, as we've said all along, since he's been here, really his whole career, Max has never had an arm injury, nothing like that at all. This is sort of like that, although it didn't happen as a result of pitching. And knowing Max, I'm sure he wanted to pitch. But knowing him as well, I think I can understand why he would say, yeah, let's not risk this turning into something far more significant. Remember when he had the, uh, was it the groin a few weeks back? He felt like, yeah, if I really had to, I could go out there and take the mound. But that might make me change my mechanics, which is then going to maybe lead to a larger injury. That's not good for him, the team, or anybody. So in this case, he says he thinks he'll be good to go at his next start. That would be against the Phillies on the road. That would be before the trade deadline. Should be Thursday at the latest in the series finale. The trade deadline is Friday. And then we'll see what happens after that. But for anyone who thought that this was tied into the trade deadline, no, I I really don't think that was the case. Max wanted to pitch this game. The Nationals wanted Max to pitch this game. The only thing I'll say, if you really want to go conspiracy, here's the one thing I might concede. If it was 50-50, whether he could pitch or not, I could see the Nationals saying, well, hang on a second. We don't want to put you out there if you might get hurt worse. And now if we did decide to trade you, you may have lost that value because you got hurt. I could see why that would maybe make them be more cautious about starting him. But he legitimately did get hurt and was not able to pitch in this game. And, and there's, there's nothing fishy going on with that. I will spare you a rant on pitchers hitting and the damage that can do. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. Yeah, I, I, I'm not going to go off on that now. I do want to say this, though, and this struck me with this latest Max injury ailment. So if Max is back with the Nationals next season, either they don't trade him and resign him or they trade him and then resign him, I really think the thinking on Max Scherzer needs to change, and it needs to change in this way. If the Nats are going to continue to be a starting pitching dependent team, Max can no longer be the number one pitcher in the rotation. In other words, the Nats have to start building for a life beyond Max Scherzer as the ace. And that's not to say that he's still not a great pitcher because he is, but he now has had, by my count, six injury things since the start of the 2019 season. And look, he's a human being, you know, he's in his age 36 season the body is starting to fail him. 2019, he had two stints on the 10-day injured list. 2019 World Series, he gets scratched from game five. This past spring training, Davey Martinez on the day on which pitchers and catchers have their first workout tells us Max is dealing with a sprained left ankle. And then earlier this season, we had him dealing with the groin inflammation. 
And now we have this triceps scenario that he's dealing with here. So it's like, none of these things are super serious. This isn't like a Strasburg situation, but you can tell like the guy's body is starting to fail him. It's understandable. I mean, you know, nobody's trying to crucify Max for this, but you know, to me, this needs to become a Dodgers situation where like Max graduates to ace emeritus, the way that Clayton Kershaw has with the Dodgers. And the Nats need to find themselves a Walker Bueller. Now, easier said than done, I know. Maybe Kate Cavalli could be that guy. We'll see. But I think like when it comes to Mike Rizzo's roster construction and roster thinking this offseason, it can't just be, well, we still have Max or we're going to bring back Max and he's going to be our horse. He's going to be our ace. I don't think you could think that way anymore. I think it has to be, we have Max and he's a great number two. And you know, at times he can maybe still serve as a number one. But if we're going to be a starting pitching dependent team, it's time to start planning for life beyond Max Scherzer. Well, that all sounds great on paper. Here's the problem. They already have Strasburg signed for a ton of money next year. They already have Corbin signed for a ton of money next year. Those guys aren't going anywhere. If you bring back Scherzer, he's not going to be cheap. He might be cheaper than he is now, but he's not going to be cheap. That's a lot of money invested in those three. You're saying they need another number one on top of all that, and they don't have a Walker Bueller on the verge of coming up. Maybe Cade Cavalli eventually is that guy, but I don't think we know for a fact you know, even if he is a big leaguer to start 2022, let alone the ace of the team. So you're going to go spend another 25, 30 million a year on another starting pitcher this winter. That is a lot of money to be investing. And this is where the Strasburg and Corbin contracts are long-term going to have an effect on them. They sort of have boxed themselves into a corner where those two have to be part of this, whether Max Scherzer is or isn't. And if Max is back, it's kind of like those are the big three. And I don't know if they can go get a fourth to be honest. It's going to have to come from within or it's going to have to be John Lester types that they sign for less money. So I I get what you're saying. I don't think it's wrong philosophically what you're saying. I just don't know that practically speaking, they're going to be in a position to do anything like that. I don't know how many guys are open to this, but in thinking about our Strasburg conversation in the last installment of the podcast, here's how I think I would do pitcher contracts if I was a GM. I would not do any more of these long-term mega money deals. I think the model for the future is what the Dodgers did with Trevor Bauer. And you just give the guy an insane AAV, but you make it a short-term deal, and you say, look, man, we don't believe in five, six, seven-year contracts for pitchers, but what we will do is we will overpay you. We will pay you like crazy for a year, two years, maybe three years, you know, like $40 million a year. And I would see who's open to that. And yeah, that does spike your payroll in a given year or years, but it removes that long-term commitment and removes the threat of some, you know, 70-year albatross, the likes of which the Nationals now have with Steven Strasburg. I don't know if the learners would be open to doing that in terms of the payroll, but I think that's the way to do these pitcher contracts. Instead of continually watching teams get burned by these Strasburg-like deals, and it's not just Strasburg, it's, you know, it's Felix Hernandez, it's, it's, it's all these other guys that have signed these deals. Why not the Bauer model? I think that's the way to do this. I know not everyone's going to be open to it, But maybe that's a way by which the Nats could add a frontline starting pitcher and not get sucked into some onerous deal for years to come. Yeah, but then you're talking about a scenario where you almost have to go over the luxury tax, for one thing, which the Dodgers are willing to do. I don't know if the Nats have done in the past. Would they do it again? I don't know. And then really, and and here's where the Dodgers would, I don't think people talk enough about this, about them. Yeah, they spend the most money. You know what else they do a great job of? Developing their own across the board. They have so many good quality players who came up through their system. And what that means is that they're cheap for the first few years. The only way to me you can do that, if you're going to have that top heavy of a rotation in terms of salary, is the rest of your salary uh, of your payroll has got to be zero to three guys 
who are making the major league minimum or close to it. And the only way you do that is through your own system. And as we've seen, the Nats don't have guys knocking on the door ready to do that. So, I mean, this is really the big picture dilemma that they're in, where in order to sustain success down the road, they kind of have to spend money on veterans and on free agents because they don't have the cheap guys coming up through their own system to take over, at least not yet. And that's why I do think it's an interesting dilemma for them. We're getting way ahead of ourselves here, but you know, at the end of this year, is this a retool and they're trying to win next year or is it a rebuild? In which case you're saying, you know what, it's going to be a couple of years until we're good because we're going to wait till young guys come up and take over as that next generation. It's a tricky thing. It's, it, it's a hard thing to pull off, especially if you don't have ownership that is saying, let's go for broke, spend whatever you want to try to win. Yeah. The luxury tax thing is always funny to me. Owners love to use that as an excuse. When the Nats have paid the luxury tax, I hope people understand this. In 2017, the Nats paid the luxury tax. The tax that was paid was $1.45 million. That was it. In 2018, the Nats paid the tax. The tax was $2.4 million. Now, I know if the learners don't want to pay it, it doesn't matter what it is. But I just hope people understand it's not like some 15, 20, 30 million dollar tax bill. It's the cost of like some low-level middle infielder. You know, it's Jordy Mercer is what the luxury tax bill ends up being if you end up going over it the way the Nats have gone over it in the past. Treat the whole family to a fun night of baseball with the Bethesda Big Train at Shirley Povich Field. Big Train Baseball is the perfect mix of small-town charm and big-league talent right here in Bethesda's Cabin John Regional Park. Visit BigTrain.org forward slash tickets to reserve your seats for tonight's game and all other home games throughout July. The reason we're talking about all these things is the state of the Nationals right now and is what went down on Saturday night, a second consecutive loss at the Orioles. 5-3 ends up being the final. Mark, it was Jorge Lopez on Friday night. It was Matt Harvey on Saturday night. Matt Harvey, who has had a horrendous season, although in his previous outing, he did toss six scoreless innings. And in this outing, he does it again. Six scoreless innings, four strikeouts versus one hit, a Trey Turner double, and no walks. The Nats in the game, five hits, uh, no walks, eight strikeouts, one for six with runners in scoring position. Another maddening night for the Nationals at the plate. If your name isn't Trey Turner, Josh Harrison, or Juan Soto, you did nothing offensively for the Nats in this game. Well, you know, it was a great crowd at City Field. They were fired up. They're chanting Harvey's better. I mean, this was a big game for the Mets to prove that. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. I've just had a flashback to 2013 there. It's not 2013. It's 2021. Did that really just happen? I mean, is that really the Matt Harvey we saw in this game? How did that happen? Now, he looked good. I mean, he was throwing 95, his breaking ball, a great movement on it. He was fooling hitters. I mean, he, pumping strikes, getting quick outs. I don't know how much to credit him, how much to criticize the Nationals, but he was as dialed in as I've seen him in a long, long time. He retired 18 of the 19 batters he faced. 18 of 19. He was lights out. And if not for them just being careful with his... uh pitch count and all that, he, he probably would have kept going and who knows how he would have done the rest of the night. So, I mean, that was dumbfounding to me. I mean, he had Ryan Zerman fooled a couple times, striking out looking. He had Juan Soto fooled in the two times they faced each other. Escobar did nothing against him. The bottom of the order did absolutely nothing against him. That was a an incredibly weak offensive performance against a guy that you thought they would hit. And this is the second straight night we've said that. You can even go three straight nights to go back to Nick Neidert of the Marlins. These are not Jacob deGrom that they're getting beaten by. 
these last three days. They're getting shut down by some pitchers with some high ERAs and in some cases, very much lack of experience. Yeah. And what does that sound like? That sounds like something we kept saying over and over earlier this season where the offense was struggling. It wasn't always the DeGroms and the Brandon Woodruffs who ends up dominating the Nationals. It was a lot of these, you know, Jorge Lopez types and, you know, Matt Harvey retread types who were doing this, you know, Tucker Davidson for the Atlanta Braves, people like that. And and that's kind of back to that here over these last few games. It's bizarre. The offense was rolling. I mean, the Nats came out of the all-star break and they were mashing and over these last three games, it's like, you know, you stepped inside the DeLorean and you've gone right back to mid-May and the Nats just cannot hit right now. I mentioned the three guys who did hit at least reasonably well in this game. Good to see Juan Soto with the home run, a one-out opposite field solo shot to left off the Orioles reliever Adam Pletko in the top of the seventh. Trey Turner had a couple of hits, a double and a two-run single. The two-run single, I mean, thank goodness for that. Nats had the bases loaded, nobody out in the top of the eighth at least do get the two runs with the Trey Turner single, but that could have been disastrous. That, that could have been one of those, you know, prototypical bad Nats offensive moments. One of those prototypical Nationals offensive fails this year where you have this prime run scoring inning all set up to you, served on a silver platter, and you almost get nothing out of it. At least Trey allowed for you to get something out of it. Yeah, Tanner Scott was all over the place. I mean, he hits Carter Keboom and Trace Barrera back to back in the foot and almost hit Victor Robles. Right after that. And then Robles ends up striking out looking. I mean, it was a, that was a long, tough at bat, but he did strike out. Alcides Escobar then strikes out pretty quickly for the second out. And then, like you said, thank God for Trey Turner with a two run single. But then, you know, you say Soto in the home run, and, and it's hard to criticize Juan Soto given what he's done since the All Star break. But that pop up to the catcher to end the inning, that was a killer. He also came up after the Turner double in the fourth and grounded out. You know, hey, home run was great. You can't all be on Juan's shoulders, but right now, given the state of the lineup, given the state of the team, he kind of does have to be on Turner and Soto's shoulders. And Soto did it once tonight, but he couldn't do it beyond that, and that hurt them. I thought when he came up, okay, he might be able to finish this thing off and at least tie the game going into the ninth, and he just popped up a pitch, and he you could see the frustration on his end when he did that. So some bad at-bats leading up to all that, and there were a couple of good ones sprinkled in there, but not nearly enough. Yeah, Soto did have that great defensive play, too. That was a terrific diving catch. The right center field gap to Rob Michael Franco, the hit on his one-out RBI sack fly in the Orioles' three-run six inning. And I mentioned Josh Harrison. He had a good offensive night, so I do want to credit him. He had a good defensive night as well, a third, Harrison. Yeah, he did. Harrison, two for four, double in a single in the game. Harrison was an at-starting third baseman. Speaking of third baseman, guess who's back at the major league level? Just like the prodigal son, he has returned. Carter Keboom recalled from AAA Rochester on Saturday as Jordy Mercer is back on the 10-day injured list, retroactive to July 21st with a left calf strain. And so the Nationals have recalled Carter Keboom. This marks his second stint with the Nats at the Major League level this season. Remember, Carter Keboom, actually, after all the drama of spring training ended up beginning the season with the Nationals. He was on their season opening 26-man roster due to the COVID-19 outbreak, and the Nats could not wait to demote him. They ended up sending him to that uh, alternate training site in Fredericksburg on April 9th. So Keyboom is uh, off the bench on Saturday night. He actually gets hit by a pitch in a pinch hit scenario in the two-run eighth inning. But then, and I had to laugh watching this. I know you shouldn't laugh at other people's struggles, but it, this was just like, to me, as predictable as the sun rising in the east. Tate to the belt of the pitch. Swing and a miss. Struck him out, and the game is over. 
Harrison left the board. Keyboom fails to get the bat on the ball. Keyboom looking so bad and striking out on three pitches against Dylan Tate. Nats actually had something going in that ninth inning. Runner on first, two outs. Keyboom's up. You know, in theory, right? Tying runner is at the plate. And Carter Keyboom, one, two, three, strikes out against Dylan Tate. Ball game over. If you're Carter Keyboom and you're trying to, you know, reignite your career here, I know it's one plate appearance, right? But uh, that's not exactly an impression you want to leave on Davey Martinez at the end of the ball game. No, it wasn't. And in a lot of ways, it was unfortunate that he was the guy in that in that position. You know, he didn't start the game. That was Harrison at third base with Parr and left field. And then when it got to the eighth and Brandon Hyde brought in the lefty, David decided, all right, I'm going to pull out Parr and let's put in the righty key boom. And now he's in there for the rest of the game. He ends up coming up to bat again. Now, I don't think we're going to see a lot of him based on the way Davey talked about this beforehand. I think Harrison is going to continue to be the third baseman against righties with, I guess, Parra and left, at least until Schwarber comes back. And then maybe against lefties, you'll see Keyboom at third with Harrison moving out to left. But I didn't get the sense that Keyboom was called up so that he can become the everyday third baseman again. Now, who knows? A week from now, if they've made some trades and if they are conveying that they are no longer trying to win this season, then absolutely you put them out there. You see what you have once and for all. You make your decision in the offseason. But for now, if they are still trying to win games and stay competitive, I don't think Carter Keeboom is going to be in the lineup on much of a regular basis. No, and, and I mean, nothing we saw on Saturday night would compel you to think otherwise. Where's Yadiel Hernandez? Yadiel's been looking good as a pinch hitter lately. Why did Carter Keeboom come to bat twice on Saturday night and we didn't see Yadiel? Well, I think it was a matchup thing, lefty, righty. You know, I think if, if they were facing a righty, it would have been Yadiel, but he wouldn't pinch it for Parra with, uh, against the lefty, wouldn't bring Yadiel for that. Now, maybe two outs in the ninth, you'd say, go with Yadiel for that one against Dylan Tate. And then if you tie the game and extend it, he could go to left and Harrison could go back to third. I suppose that's a possibility. Although I know they still don't love Yadiel in the field and now there'd be extra innings. I don't know. I think it's pretty clear at this point they view Yadiel as a pinch hitter and not much else beyond that, to be honest. And maybe deep down, Davey wanted to see how Keeboom would handle that situation. I don't know. It was not a great at bat. They were kind of flailing away at that point, trying to keep the game alive. So I'm not sure what kind of difference it would have made. You know, maybe he's also saving Yadiel to hit for Robles, who's now in the game after having pinch hit for Stevenson. Are you going to let Robles bat with the game on the line in the ninth? Or maybe you have to put Yadiel in there to do that. So, I mean, you know, their options are pretty thin at this point when you get to that part of their bench. John Lester was the national starting pitcher in this 5-3 loss at the Orioles on Saturday night. I remember was coming off that seven scoreless innings outing in the 18-1 win over Miami at Nats Park on Monday night. And, you know, Lester, I mean, I, you know, I don't know how much time it's worth uh, getting into Lester at this point. He, you know, he was so-so. Like, he wasn't the Nats' biggest problem necessarily in this game. But, you know, three runs in five innings. I mean, it's not very good, okay? Like, we kind of grade on a curve with John Lester at this point. On the one hand, he only gave up three hits in a walk. But on the other hand, the three hits were three extra base hits, two solo homers and a double. He had just two strikeouts. He threw just 41 strikes versus 29 balls. The two home runs, bottom of the first, one out first pitch solo shot by Trey Mancini. And then bottom of the fourth, two out solo shot by Ryan Mountcastle on a blasted dead center. That homer going to projected 437 feet for StatCast. And then Lester got charged with a run in the Orioles' three-run six. He gave up a leadoff double to Cedric Mullins. Austin Voth came into the game. Voth struggled in this game, allowed an RBI double to the first batter he faced 
Austin Hayes. So, you know, we know at this point, Lester, it seems he's not going anywhere because the Nationals don't have anywhere for him to go. Uh, They don't have other viable options for the rotation. So he's going to keep going out there. He's been better over these last two starts. I mean, he's not the train wreck that he had been, but still, you know, three runs in five innings is nothing to get excited about. No, the final line's not great. It was just a weird start because for four innings, he literally never had to pitch out of the stretch. It was the two solo homers and he retired every other batter that he faced until the fifth and the pitch count was low, 47 pitches through four innings. So, I mean, in in some respects, like that's exactly what you're hoping for from John Lester. He gets through the fifth despite a leadoff walk and he's at 67. And I'm assuming that no matter what happened with Mullins to lead off the sixth, that was probably the last batter he was going to face no matter what. Davey probably just want to go lefty-lefty to start that inning and then pull him because he doesn't want Lester facing that lineup three times through, especially with some big right-handed hitters coming up. So in some respects, I think you look at it and say, okay, that's kind of the baseline of what you were hoping for from John Lester. And if they just score a few more runs for him, it doesn't look that bad. And you think, okay, he, he gave us a chance to win. The problem is when you're struggling to score runs the way they did in this game, and they have for a few days now, even those three runs he gave up were more than enough to make it a big challenge. And then Austin Voth kind of made a mess of it after that. You know, if Voth can get out of the inning, he's only then Lester's only charged with two runs. And that, to me, Voth was the bigger problem in this one than Lester. Lester did kind of did his job. And no, I mean, he could have been better. You wish that the, the two hits weren't home runs. But, you know, he didn't walk anybody. He was aggressive. The pitch count was low. You know, he gave him a chance, which at this stage of his career, I think is what they're asking for from him. Yeah, both, a.k.a. Austin Suero, was not good. You know, there's good both, bad both, like there's good Suero, bad Suero. And, and both was really bad. Comes into the game, man on second, nobody out, gives up that RBI double to Austin Hayes, then gives up a single to Trey Mancini, then issues a seven-pitch walk to Mountcastle. You know, both had Mountcastle down 0-2, ends up walking him on seven pitches. Then comes a one-out RBI single by the ex-Nat Pedro Severino, who both had down at one point, one-two, and then came that sack fly by Michael Franco with one out on the great catch by Soto. So, yeah, both was bad. Sam Clay looked pretty good, scoreless bottom of the seventh. Daniel Hudson, scoreless bottom of the eighth. But, you know, at this point, it's like the details of these games are mattering less and less. It's more about the outcomes. It's more about where this national season is at. And it's obviously not in a very good place right now. I guess let's say this. Mike Rizzo's not going to come out and say anything clearly. When do you think he'll make up his mind? Do you think it's possible his mind is already made up on the trade deadline? Or or do you think Rizzo truly is going to wait this thing out before he, in his own mind, decides if I'm going to be a seller or a buyer? You know, he may not wait until the day of July 30th, but I don't think he's making that decision on Saturday night or Sunday morning, I think he's waiting at least a few more days. And I feel a little bit silly even pointing this out. But as we're taping this, the Mets are on the verge of losing to the Blue Jays. They're getting blown out. So they're going to remain seven games back. That's still seven games. That's a lot to make up. And one of these days, they actually have to gain ground, not just hold ground. But if the next few days, there was a turn of events, and they all of a sudden find themselves four out Instead, it might change the equation. So I think he was being genuine when he told us the other day that this probably wouldn't happen until right down to the end. Now, maybe it happens a day before as opposed to the day of, but I don't think he's going to bed Saturday night and saying, okay, I'm trading Hand and Hudson and Schwarber and Harrison and Scherzer and all those other guys. I I think he's saying, okay, I need to start seriously thinking about what I can get for them, but I'm leaving the door open until we get uh, within 48 hours of the deadline. You tell us what you think. Hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can always email the Nats chat podcast as well. 
These are interesting times right now, not just in the season, but for the state of the Nationals franchise. What should the Nats thinking be with Friday's MLB trade deadline looming? July 30th, 4 p.m. Eastern, Nats Chat Podcast at gmail.com is how you can reach us. That's Nats Chat Podcast at gmail.com. A reminder, uh, on Sunday morning, there will be the radio show installment of the Nats Chat Podcast. For those listening in and around the Richmond area. And truthfully, you don't even have to be in the Richmond area. You can listen on ESPNRichmond.com. But uh, a one-hour best-of version of the Nats Chat podcast will be airing on 1061 ESPN in Richmond. Again, you can listen outside of the Richmond area by going to ESPNRichmond.com. That's Sunday morning at 9 a.m. So, Mark, you can wake up on Sunday and listen to yourself on the radio. I know you enjoy doing stuff like that. I mean, if that doesn't get me up and moving on a Sunday morning, I don't know what will, Al. I mean, I usually listen to podcasts in the car on the way to the ballpark already, but maybe I can have my uh, coffee and read the paper in the morning and, and listen to our voices as well because there's nothing I want to listen to more than that. No, hey, li- look, I, this is a really cool thing that uh, Tim Shovers has set up, uh, both for the audience in Richmond, like you said, anybody, anywhere. If you missed some episodes along the way or you haven't listened to them all the way through, Check it out. You might catch some things that you missed along the way. And like I said, very cool job by Tim to get that set up and help expand our reach. Yeah. And Richmond's a great Nationals area. A lot of Nats fans in the Richmond area. So we're thrilled uh, to be on there. If you do not already subscribe to the Nats Chat Podcast, please consider subscribing. Cost you nothing. And uh, if you haven't already, please, if you would, give the podcast a five-star rating and just write like a one-sentence review doing those things. Helps out the podcast a lot. Doesn't cost you anything. And uh is very much appreciated. Nats Chat Podcast t-shirts remain available and uh, ready for you to have. You can go to natschatpodcast.square.site. That's natschatpodcast.square.site. And we want to send out a shout out to Melissa Cohen, who has been killing it by wearing her Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt, not just at Nationals Park, but Mark, Melissa was on the road on Saturday night at Camden Yards, proudly wearing it. Her Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt. That's a warrior. That's a soldier in the militia. That is the Nats Chat Podcast. Someone going on the road and wearing the gear. Way to go, Melissa. We appreciate that. Uh, while I was gone on my trip, I, I know there was somebody out in San Francisco that represented right behind the plate, correct? So we are, our, our reach is expanding. Uh, we appreciate all of it. And um, hope Melissa made it home safely from Baltimore wearing that shirt. Yes, I heard she went to Pickles afterwards and started a fight, but uh, <laughs> Melissa can tell us that story at, at some point. But thank you so much, Melissa. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. Here's the 2-2. Swing a fly ball, left center field deep. This one's got a chance way back toward the wall, and there it goes. Juan Soto over the 364 mark in left center has home run number 17. And he has the Nationals on the board in the top of the seventh.